Welcome to Policy Today. Thoughtful discussion of current issues vital to the future prosperity of Washington State. Produced by the Washington Research Council. My name is Chris Schoblum. I am Vice President for Research and Economist at the Washington Research Council. And with me today is Emily Makings, Senior Research Analyst with the Council. And today we are going to be talking about paid sick leave. A bill requiring paid sick leave benefits was recently passed by the House Labor and Appropriations Committee and is expected to be on the floor of the House um, this week. So, Emily, uh, what would this bill do? Well, the bill is HB 1356, and it would require all employers in the state who have more than four full-time equivalent employees to provide a paid sick and safe time benefit. Sick time is exactly what you think. It could be used not only when the worker is sick, but also if the worker needs time to care for a sick family member. Safe time would be used when a worker is dealing with domestic violence or sexual assault issues, or when the place of business or child's school is closed for public health reasons. All employees who work more than 240 hours or about 30 days in Washington during a year would be entitled to the benefit. And the amount of sick and safely provided would depend on the size of the employer. So employers with more than four and less than 50 full-time equivalent employees would have to provide one hour of leave for every 40 hours worked. And an employee would be allowed to use at least 40 hours of leave a year. For employers with at least 50 and less than 250 FTEs, they would have to provide one hour of leave for every 40 hours worked as well. But an employee would be allowed to use at least 56 hours of leave a year. Finally, employers with 250 or more FTEs would have to provide one hour of leave for every 30 hours worked and employees would be allowed to use at least 72 hours of leave a year. For current employees, accrual would begin January 1st, 2016. Going forward, accrual would begin when an employee begins working. An employee would be able to use accrued leave 180 days after beginning employment. And the bill would exempt employees who are covered by a collective bargaining agreement. This all sounds familiar. Yes, uh, the city of Seattle provided a paid sick and safe time ordinance, which has been in place since September 1st, 2012, and it's very similar to the House bill. Are there any major differences between Seattle's law and the proposed state law? There are a few. Under HB 1356, an employer may require documentation if an employee takes three days off in a row, but if so, the employer must pay half of the cost of any out-of-pocket expenses that are incurred for example, costs of um, doctor services, testing, and even transportation to the doctor's office. But under Seattle's law, the employer only has to cover half of these costs if he doesn't offer health insurance. Second, HB 1356 contains a civil enforcement provision under which anyone, and not just the employees directly affected, but anyone acting on behalf of the public health and welfare could sue an employer for violations. Is there a fiscal note on this bill? Yes. Uh, overall, the bill would increase general fund state spending by $2.3 million in the 2015-17 biennium. But that's definitely an understatement. Most of the agencies that are included in the fiscal note said that the, there would be costs, but they were indeterminate. Some interesting points from the fiscal note are that, according to the health care authority, the state provides a more generous leave policy to its employees than the bill would provide for 
hence the fairly low spending amount. Also, employment security data shows that about 2.7 million employees in the state currently work for employers who would be subject to the bill. And lastly, the universities would be heavily impacted because they would have to provide leave to student employees and others that they do not currently provide leave to. For example, WSU has 1,000 non-student employees and 1,800 student employees who don't accrue leave right now. WSU also notes that administrative costs would be significant for them, and so they would probably also be significant for private employers. And uh, Eastern's faculty collective bargaining agreement does not provide paid sick leave, so they say they would have to renegotiate their collective bargaining agreements. I think that's because the bill's exemption for collective bargaining agreements specifies that the agreement must include an explicit waiver of the requirement of paid sick leave. So uh, do any other jurisdictions require employers to provide paid sick leave? Yes, but this is a very new mandate nationwide. The first was in San Francisco in 2007, and D.C. implemented one in 2008. Connecticut implemented in 2012, and Seattle in 2012. Since then, several have been enacted in 2014 or will become effective in 2015 or 2016. Those include uh, Massachusetts, California, and Tacoma, and several cities in um, New Jersey and California, and New York City also. So are there any studies on the economic impact of such requirements? There are, but unfortunately the few that exist are very limited. The mandates are new, as I said, so most of the studies that exist are simply employer surveys, and many are kind of questionable. Supporters often like the results. They, they tend to show that they aren't very impactful to employers, but when you look closer, there's not much there. Many of the surveys include employers who are already offered sick leave to their employees, so results showing benefits or at least not big problems with the policy are often overstated. Sectors that offered less sick leave to begin with tend to say the new laws are burdensome. Some examples include an Institute for Women's Policy Research study from 2011 that surveyed employers and employees in San Francisco and found that 28.4% of workers in the bottom wage quartile reported that employers reduced hours or laid off employees due to the paid leave requirement. And 53.9% of all employers said it was not difficult to administer their new law but 57.9% of food service and accommodation employers said that the administration was difficult, probably because food safety and accommodation sectors are, were less likely to have offer paid sick leave previously. 80.4% of employers said that presenteeism, which is coming to work while ill and is supposedly the purpose of these laws, was about the same as before the law. A 2013 report from the Seattle Auditor found that of employers offering paid sick leave, 44% reported that employees came to work while sick, compared to 31.3% of those who did not get sick leave. Again, that kind of goes against the stated purpose of these of these proposals, of these mandates. And a 2014 follow-up study from the Seattle Auditor found that 93% of employers saw no change in presenteeism, and 98% saw no change in employee turnover which is another um, supposed benefit of these laws that's cited by supporters, that um, employers who offer paid sick leave see lower turnover. Um, but that wasn't indicated by the 
Seattle experience. Lastly, a Center for Economic and Policy Research study looked at Connecticut's law, and they, they also surveyed employers, and they found only a modest impact on businesses. But they know that the Connecticut law has many exemptions and that the vast bulk of covered employers already provided paid sick leave. Still, 53.2% of that in that survey saw, said that their costs increased. So finally, the Seattle Auditor's report noted that the ordinance mandated a change in employee compensation and that businesses might change the proportion of resources devoted to compensation in response to that mandate. Or they might shift the type of compensation, like by decreasing other paid leave or bonuses. Or they might try to increase revenues. Some employers did all of these things. Ultimately, policies like paid sick leave mandates, especially combined with increasing the minimum wage, limit the ability of employees and employers to decide what package of benefits is most beneficial to both sides. And they increase the cost of doing business in a particular jurisdiction with apparently little health benefits. Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, This has been Chris Schoblum and Emily Makings from the Washington Research Council. Policy Today is a production of the Washington Research Council dedicated to providing timely, credible research and policy analysis supporting economic vitality and private sector job creation. For more information, go to researchcouncil.org.